Well, good morning. We have been spending the last three weeks plus this morning talking about differences with an overall view that in the face of differences, and not just minor differences, but major, cataclysmic, convictional differences, that we are called as children of God to treat all people with dignity, no matter what our differences may be. We've had a chance over the last couple of weeks to tackle some different areas. We looked at differences even inside the church. We talked about non-denominationalism. And while we agree with churches throughout history and around the world on a core set of central doctrines, there are a lot of secondary and tertiary issues where we just need a boatload of grace as we interact with one another. And we especially try to cultivate that here at a church that is non-denominational. The week after that, Matt Kim came and shared with us some of his experiences uh, growing up here as an American of Korean descent and that racism is still something that exists and it even exists inside the church and that we need to continue to confront it, to address it, to acknowledge it and to work against it in order to continue to confer dignity upon all people based on their being created in the image of God. Then last week, we had Dr. Sherrick come in and share with us about politics, sort of a 30,000-foot view of a Christian framework that actually invites us into political engagement. That says, far be it from Christians sort of saying off to the side that there's actually a, a place for having a voice as Christians within the political arena. And this morning, all we have to do is figure out how to interact with an unbelieving world. That is our task this morning, because there are differences that we will run into between the people of God and an unbelieving world. As we begin to head in that direction, let me just offer this time to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we need you. Uh, we need you because we are fallible, broken, sinful people. We delight that we are also a redeemed, called, and chosen people. And so in the midst of trying to figure out how to live in the midst of deep difference, we ask that you would just allow your grace to flow upon us, to recognize that we are the recipients of your unmerited favor. While we were still sinners, that's when you loved us. That's when Christ died for us. We have received your favor without earning it without deserving it. In light of that, may you allow us to extend favor to others without them having to earn it, without them deserving it. May we be accurate reflections of your spirit in the world and in the spheres in which you place us. Shape us even in this time as we approach your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have a couple of differences between the people of God and an unbelieving world. I don't feel like I need to make a huge case for this. I think this is somewhat self-evident, but in a couple of areas, there's obviously a, a, a set of moral differences uh, between the people of God and the rest of the world. Even the idea of morality, that a universal morality exists and that is founded in God himself. What is good? Well, what is good is basically whatever delights the heart of God. What is evil? It's that which rejects and works against the purposes of God. I mean, 
that framework. You remove God from that equation, the framework falls apart. Good and evil become relative. You talk about values, and you look at the people of God who say, you know what? Integrity, honesty, perseverance, long-suffering, faithfulness, forgiveness. These are not necessarily, we see them in some places out in the world, but these are not necessarily the virtues that get celebrated on the evening news. We talk about the idea of truth, that we actually believe there is such a thing as absolute truth in the world. This is one of those places where the church and science actually co coincides really nicely. But in an age that has sort of embraced postmodernism and a relativism, whatever's true for you might not be true for me. As, a, as the people of God, we say, actually, there is such a thing as truth that is defined by God. That's an area of difference between us and the world around us. And even just our idea of what is the good life? Does it mean let's get rich, have lots of toys, and play hard till we die? Or does it mean actually having a relationship with the living God? And regardless of whether we are in plenty or in want, in sickness or in health, they sound like wedding vows, uh, the reality is life makes sense when you have a relationship with Jesus. That's the good life. So there, we are different from the world in those and a hundred thousand other ways. And I'm here to tell you this morning that being different from the world is not a bad thing. It's not. And yet at times we sort of slide into thinking that it is. We're like, well, we don't really want to stand out. Uh, I'm not really going to say anything in this context because then they'll know I'm different. Or, and we find ourselves just sort of, I don't think it's purposefully like withdrawing, but it, there's an element of hesitancy to be fully who we are out in an unbelieving world. Being different is deliciously beautiful. We should gravitate to the idea of being different. Being different is not bad unless unless we conduct ourselves badly while we're being different. That's the problem. Being different is not the problem. Conducting ourselves badly in our differences is the problem. And so to address what does it look like to live for Jesus in an unbelieving world, we're going to the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to grab them. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verses 11 and 12 are going to anchor our conversation this morning. If it, you're using a Black Pew Bible, that's page 981. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is the book for this. Peter writes to, to the Christians who are scattered and who are decidedly a minority all throughout the empire. He's, he's writing to those who have been marginalized economically, socially, those who have been uh, excluded from business affairs, even religiously in conflict with Judaism and, and the conversions that are happening, Peter is writing to a group of people who are like, we want to follow Jesus, but it's really complicated. How do we do this well? So I would have used the entire book of 1 Peter, except that's a little much to bite off for one morning. So instead, I'm just saying these verses, verses 11 and 12, really get to the heart of what Peter had in mind for those Christians in his day. And I think God offers them to us this morning as a guide for how we should live, even in, with our differences in an unbelieving world. So here's the text. 
It's up on the screen if you don't have it. Dear friends, Peter writes, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I'm going to read that again. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is good stuff. And you can't get like five words in before I'm like, wait, what did he just say? Right? Look at this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, here's lesson number one. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. We are foreigners. We are exiles in a foreign country. Do you know what it's like to live in a foreign country? I do. When Joe and I first moved down here from Canada, I distinctly remember her coming back from Beverly Hospital and, and telling me the story of a nurse who, who said to her, if you say A one more time, so help me God. <laughs> and we thought, there's no small irony in being mocked for the way we speak here. <laughs> but you could tell we weren't from around these parts. I do weddings and people always smirk when I say enjoy and in sorrow. <laughs> He's Canadian. I say processor instead of processor. You can tell that I'm not from here. Now, the longer I stay here, the more assimilated I become. But that's just a small taste of what it's like to actually live as foreigners and exiles. We shouldn't fit in. There should be something noticeably different about us. This isn't our home. We should talk different. We should be different. The, the, the things that we value, the things that we love, the things that we celebrate, the teams we cheer for, all of that stuff, those are all the hallmarks of what your home country is. The starting place for living amongst differences is saying it's okay to be from somewhere else. It's okay to be different to be from somewhere else. As foreigners and exiles, we should be different. We should not hope that we can lose our distinctiveness so that we fit in better. That's not a win. There's actually something to being proud of where you're from. And as the people of God, what better reason to have great pride in our identity is that we are children of the living God. I mean, this is not something we are ashamed of. This is something we celebrate. That's just from four words. As foreigners and exiles, we should be different, Peter writes. But the text continues, and he says, So, as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, I have to admit that whenever I see a phrase like sinful desires, I immediately go to all the vice lists that are throughout the New Testament, right? And you think of all these terrible, horrible, no good, very bad sins. And I do think those are in view here. But when you're looking at the context of saying, okay, 
these Christians are trying to live as a decided minority, misunderstood, mischaracterized, trying to live for Jesus in an unbelieving world, what do you think the specific sins are that they might be wrestling with that might be relevant to that context? I'm sure, you know, sexual sin, lust, lying, deceit, those, those are the standard ones. But what about things like the need to be liked by others around you? Have you thought of that like a sin? There's something there that says, instead of putting my identity in Jesus, I'm going to put my identity in being well-liked. That's going to war against my soul. Or think of maybe the need to be in the majority so that I don't have to stand out, so that I won't stick out in the culture, so that I don't have to be that guy who's going the other direction from the rest of the culture. Or maybe, maybe it's the need to be right all the time. Or, or at least to be seen as being right all the time. There's an issue of our identity, of our, our self-centeredness, our, that needs to be addressed there. There's a whole set of fears as well. Not all fear is sin. I'm not saying that, but there are some fears that sort of put us in the same category. The fear of being different. If we are going to take a step away from any kind of confrontation or difference because we don't want to be different from anybody. Or, or maybe even just the fear of ridicule. I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to stand up for the name of Jesus because I might take some heat. Or even just the, the fear of being rejected. There's this, I think, a, a, a sort of constellation of desires. I just want to fit in. I just want to get along. I just want to be accepted. I just want friendship. I just want community. I just want, I just want, I just want. And all of these are the things that are warring against our souls in a letter where Peter is saying, you need to be different. Abstain from those kinds of sinful desires. They're, they're waging war against your soul. So as foreigners and exiles, yes, you should be different. And then abstain from sinful desires which war against your, your soul. Instead, you should be confident. You're a child of the living God. That's not an excuse for arrogance. Arrogance takes, hey, I'm a child of the living God and makes it all about me and saying, therefore, I'm awesome. Confidence is saying, therefore, God is awesome. And the text continues. After warring against your soul, he says, live good, such good lives among the pagans. And right away, I'm like, among the who? The pagans? Is he name-calling now? What's going on here? Um, he, he's not. That just means Unbelievers. It's just a word. He's not acting. He's not being pejorative here. He's not name calling. He's just saying, we're talking about a Christian community living in the midst of an unbelieving world. The name for that is the pagans. And he's saying that's where you should be living, is among the pagans. So now it's getting even more complicated. And so he says, live such good lives among the pagans. And that's actually what I think this morning comes down to. And that's what I think this text comes down to, is what does it mean to live such good lives among those who do not believe? Isn't that our question? That's, that's been driving this whole thing. And I propose to you, there are three um, common attempts at ways that Christians throughout history and in our culture today have attempted to live such good lives. There's three sort of categories in which we try and do this. And I'm actually going to say that they're all unhelpful. 
perhaps the first step to understanding what it means to live such good lives is to say, here's what it doesn't look like. (laughs) I can tell you that much. And to do that, I need to draw a diagram because that's what I do. And because I don't have a whiteboard, I'll have to do it here. It starts with a triangle. And I'm proposing that each uh, apex of the triangle, each corner of the triangle represents an extreme that is unhealthy and unhelpful as we try to live in the midst of an unbelieving world. For example, one of them is that we should conquer the unbelieving world. We're going to win culture as though it was a men's night game of chess. Another option, to withdraw from culture, saying there's no way to win, so I might as well just not play the game, or to assimilate, to become like the culture. Let me, let me go a little deeper into some of what these mean, and let me show you why I think they are faulty, why they are unhelpful. So let's look at this idea of conquering culture. We're going to win the culture. I think one reason this doesn't work is if you think you are going to argue somebody into the kingdom of God, that you're going to have your worldview come up against their worldview, and by sheer brute force of your argument, you're going to, they're going to just be like, I never saw that before. There are people who enter the kingdom because of a good argument. It's just in my experience, it's rare. In my experience, people enter the kingdom because they meet Jesus, and he's the one who changes their lives. So at best, if your attitude towards the unbelieving world is, we have to get everybody out there to believe just like us, whether they want to or not, it, it's, it's the decision to try and legislate biblical morality. It's, and you might even get there. What if we do? What if we could legislate biblical morality? I'll tell you, morality is something that emerges from within. It's very difficult to legislate a relationship with Jesus. So you might even get superficial adherence to some kind of law, but underneath, if there's no relationship with Jesus, it, it's just empty. It's not a win. So at best, a desire to conquer the culture is argumentative. At worst, it's downright coercive. I'm not convinced that that mode leads people to genuine faith. It may lead them to to superficial obedience to some sort of Judeo-Christian ethic. But that's secondary to actually having a personal relationship with Jesus and living within Christian community. And ultimately, I think the biggest problem with this is that it does not treat people with dignity. The very dignity that God extends to us, saying, I died for you, and I invite you to respond in faith. When you start trying to coerce people and say, but you must respond with faith, it it actually removes their dignity from them. They should be extended the same grace that has been extended to us. And so this whole conquering the culture thing, not a win, not a win. So what's the alternative? Well, how about we withdraw from culture then? Because if we're not going to win the culture, we might as well leave it alone. But there's problems with it. And by that, I mean we get so isolated as a church, we only hang out with each other because we're safe. And we all share the same values and we all share the same goals and vision of what the good life is. And so we, we just stay us. Man, that's isolating. We miss out on so much of what God is doing in the world when we just circle the wagons, right? I think it actually reduces our access to beauty and love. You know, it says in Romans 1 that God has made himself known through all he has made. 
not just through the Christians he's made. There is beauty in different cultures. There's beauty in different religions. And while they're all sort of have pieces of the truth, and while I genuinely and want to clearly convey to you that Christianity, the truth is in Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That doesn't mean there's no beauty out there that we can't learn from and grow from. There are people out there that will enrich our lives, and they're not Christians yet. Withdrawing also, I would argue, doesn't lead people to genuine faith because what you're doing is removing access to a visible representation of the gospel. You withdraw, and now they no longer have access to, to knowing about Jesus, which I would then say does not treat people with dignity. Once again, you're removing their um, dignity before God to be able to choose. You're, you're, you're removing access to the gospel. So withdrawing is not all that good either. Let's go to assimilate. And this one is when we say, okay, we don't want to conquer the culture. We don't want to withdraw from the culture. Let's live right in the midst of the culture. Let's just be right out with there and they'll know we're Christians by our love and they'll see my example and everyone will come to Jesus. Except, I was listening to an audiobook this week that said, you are the average of the six people you spend the most time with. And so if you're out there spending time with an unbelieving world and the majority of your time is spent with those who do not follow Jesus, chances are that your life will end up being a little bit unfaithful to the gospel as you begin to adopt their postures, adopt their attitudes, adopt their practices. That's not a place of neutrality. That's a place that actually leads you further away from the gospel, further away from faithfulness in Christ. And if you're fully assimilated, if you don't look any different from the world around us, then once again, you're not leading others to genuine faith because they have no idea what it looks like because you look just like them which once again, I would argue, does not treat people with dignity. You're depriving them access to the truth of the gospel by failing to live it differently in their midst. Whether you err on the side of conquering or withdrawing or assimilating, what's missing in all of these scenarios is actually treating others with dignity who are different from you. It's recognizing that every human being is created in the image of God and is therefore has dignity conferred upon them by God. Therefore, it is our responsibility to live in relationship with them in a way that, in spite of our differences, provides access to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Those extremes are unhelpful. Okay, so what's helpful then? Well, kind of everything in the middle. And this is where it gets messy. For example, on the way to the extreme of withdrawing from the culture, there are actually reasonable positions we need to take as Christians, decisions we need to make that move in that direction. Think of the way we celebrate. Do we all go out and get hammered, get completely wasted, wake up the next morning in someone else's house not remembering anything from the night before? I, I hope not. And if that's what all of our friends are going out to do, there's a place for saying, I'm going to withdraw from that. that that's not who I am called to be before God. But gossip and slander, this happens in the workplace all the time, right? And someone's not there, they leave the room and people start backbiting as a Christian, to say, you know what? There's actually a ton in the scriptures about gossip and slander. Those are community killings. I am going to not be a part of that. 
How about even more standing up for the person who's being slandered? Jake and I were talking, what about education? The idea of homeschooling to say, especially at those young ages where the, the, our children's worldviews are being shaped. What does it look like? Is it valid to say, I want to actually withdraw my kids from the public school system so that I can shape that initial worldview. Eventually, they will need to understand what it looks like to live differently from the world. But it can be an, a God-honoring decision to withdraw children and to, to, to take responsibility for their education ourselves. At the same time, it can be just as equally viable to say, I choose to put my children in the public school system so that for a young age, from a young age, they know that they're different from the world and they're learning to cope with those differences developmentally all the way through. One's not right, one's not wrong. It depends on the kid, depends on the parent. But there is a place for understanding. There's a, that's not a bad thing to withdraw. And that's before you even get to things like sexual ethics, right? I mean, you're invited to a bachelor party and there's going to be a stripper and you say, you know, I'll show up, I'll drop off a gift, and then I will make my exit because that ain't my scene. I choose to withdraw from that. Or the college students and the hookup culture that exists that says, no, we actually are not going to be part of that hookup culture. We actually have a higher view of sex than that. Or even like living together and sleeping together before marriage. And you say, no, God, that's a very permanent binding. Our view of sex is actually so high that we, that we view that as a permanent binding. The two become one flesh. And that is to be reserved for marriage alone. And that's before we even get into all the other cultural issues that are out there. What I'm trying to present here is that there is a journey that says there's actually a healthy way that withdrawal is appropriate. So maybe withdraw is not the right word, but I think what it is, it's a desire for holiness. Peter actually goes there earlier in the text. He reminds his readers, God has written, be holy as I am holy. We are called as the children of God, as the people of God, to pursue holiness. Holiness means to be set apart for sacred purpose. So when you put all that together, what we're looking at is a call to be different. That's what holiness is, like literally. The word means to be different for God's sacred purposes. Withdrawal happens when you take that too far and you begin to isolate yourself and insulate yourself from the mission of God in the world. But there is a healthy, uh, redemptive pressure in that direction to be categorically different than the world around us. And it's a desire to be holy, not to earn God's favor, not any kind of works righteousness, but in response to what Jesus has done for us, we choose to live to please him. Let's go back to conquer. That's bad. Okay, got it. Could it ever be good? Maybe. Maybe there's the same kind of redemptive pressure that moves us in that direction from time to time. What about actually being concerned about the society in which we live in? What about actually caring about establishing and creating a society where human flourishing is a priority? What about holding the government accountable? that they might actually interact with the world in a fair way, in a way that honors the dignity of all human beings. There's a place for activism for the people of God. 
for being a voice crying in the wilderness, for being a prophetic voice in a culture that's lost sight of God, and for ensuring that Christians have a seat at the table where our voice will be heard together with a Muslim voice, together with a Jewish voice, together with an atheist voice, that the, the, all the voices are represented in our forms of government and our social dialogue. And there's a place for saying the biblical principles, whether you agree with the Bible or not, some of these principles actually make the most sense for human flourishing and we want to advocate for them and we will do so strongly. There's a place for Christian activism. And that's not trying to conquer the world. If it is, that's from the wrong motive, the wrong heart place. What we're actually seeing is a desire for justice in the world. And that's, I mean, God is a fan. He has shown the man what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Justice is part of who our God is and we should be pursuing it and it is not wrong to be an activist in pursuing it. If we're saying that the, the pursuit of holiness is to be different, I'm arguing the pursuit of justice is to make a difference in the world in which God has called us to live. I'm going to keep going because assimilation, likewise, perhaps you're seeing the trend here in how the diagram works. Is there any kind of redemptive pressure that draws us towards assimilation, that causes us to increase our interactions with an unbelieving world? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, the first is just friendship. They're amazing people out there. Don't miss out on them. Beyond friendship, I think there's things like service. We should be out there serving our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, the least of these. This has nothing to do with whether they're Christians or not. We are called to serve. Love for enemies, let's step it up a notch. What about those who are actively antagonistic towards us? Oh, that's right, Jesus said we're to love them and pray for them. And the ultimate goal being to bridge them to the gospel not to convert them, not to view them as projects, but that our lives might be a bridge that would allow them to catch a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he's done for them, and they might actually have an encounter with the living God themselves and come to saving faith in Christ. This is, if you're in that trajectory, that's not about assimilating with the culture. I would argue this is, this is compassion. And that, that can feel like a wishy-washy word, so let me contextualize the word. There's a lot of pathos-based words, right? Pathos meaning to feel or to suffer, right? The passion of the Christ comes from that. You might have heard of the word empathy. That's the ability to feel something that someone else might feel. You might have heard of sympathy. That's actually entering into and feeling together with something somebody is feeling. Compathy is not a word, but, it, but compassion is close enough. And that's not just being able to feel like empathy. That's not just feeling along with them. That's sympathy. Compassion is doing something about it. It's not empathy international. It's not sympathy, inter it's compassion international. And they're doing something out of a genuine love for others' well-being. And I think we are called into an unbelieving world with hearts of compassion, not arrogance, not condescension. It's not pity. 
It's compassion. It's entering into the suffering of others and doing something about it out of genuine concern for them. So when you, put, when you take the extremes off the plate, right? Let's get rid of withdrawing and conquering and assimilation because those all have the wrong motives. Let's restore the correct motives to each of these. You've got holiness, you've got justice, you've got compassion, and we're called to live in the middle here. And if we're pursuing holiness, yes, there are times we're going to be pulled in that direction because we are called to be different. Yes, there are times that we're going to be involved in issues of justice and we're going to become activists. That's because we're called to make a difference, whether it's geopolitically or just with your neighbor or your friend at work. And then there are times where we are called to demonstrate compassion and that's where we're called to love those who are different from us. That's a lot of arrows and diagrams. What am I trying to say? I'm not trying to say anything that Peter isn't saying. When he says, live such good lives among those who do not believe. Live such good lives. What does it look like? It means to pursue holiness and justice and compassion. It means to be different. It means to make a difference, and it means to love those who are different. The challenge is that with all of those three things pulling us in all these different directions, at least as far as the diagram is concerned, living such good lives is actually hard. Because there's no rule for how to do it. There's no policy documentation that says, paragraph 3, subsection 6.1 says, when your neighbor says to you, there, there, there isn't even a, a universalized generalization that is often helpful. Like, people are so unique. The relationships you have with people are so, they're storied. There's unique histories that your relationship with this person is so different than your relationship with that person. How are you supposed to try and, and treat them both equivalently by, by setting a rule out for here's how you're supposed to live such good lives among the pagans? Well, that's a lot of information on a slide. Um, really, living such good lives very seldom looks tidy. It looks more like this. It is the mess of trying to figure out for any given relationship, for any given person, for any given context, what is the appropriate godly response? And I wish I could just say, well, here they are, one, two, and three. That's just not in Scripture. There are going to be times where we're like, you know what? We need to really take a stand on this issue. We need to get vocal. We need to actually advocate for human flourishing and justice. So we're going to get loud. Or it might just be that the way God has gifted you motivates you to be the activist and someone else is going to have a different gifting and calling. Or maybe there are going to be times where you're like, you know what? I actually have to take a stand in my workplace that I will not participate in these kinds of things. Or maybe it's going to have to say, you know what? I'm going to go that extra mile to reach those people no one else is reaching out of compassion. Regardless, this, this messy, splattery place in the middle is where we're called to live, and it's a place of tension. Well, there's that word again. Tim keeps using the word tension. I hate that word. So does Tim. But unfortunately, that's the Christian life. We have these things that are in tension. So what, am I just saying free for all? You're on your own? Good luck? Keep warm and well fed? No. But I am arguing that there are two things that you will need to navigate this tension. 
The first of which is wisdom. That is that you are so saturated with life with God and with His Word that your life experiences, you are honestly trying to follow Him each day of your life, and that as you accumulate life experience, you actually grow in the wisdom to know how to interact with people well. Wisdom is in short supply. People like dodging wisdom by having a policy. There's a story of a, a university professor who was at a baseball game and went up to get some kids to get some drinks. One for his kid, one for him. Uh, he can't have beer, can't have this kid. Oh, lemonade, Mike's lemonade. That's something he can have. And so he got his kid a Mike's lemonade. Uh, he was a somewhat of a sheltered professor. <laughs> and somebody also at the ball game saw that his child was drinking Mike's lemonade, which is hard lemonade in case you, like this professor, don't know that and reported him to the authorities. The authorities came, removed the child from his custody, made the father move out of the home for a period of time while they worked through all kinds of counseling, and, and it was actually really traumatic for the family as they did this. And every step along the way, everybody was making those decisions, said, I know this is ridiculous, it was an honest mistake, but the policy is that we have to do it this way. Policy is an excuse for not living with wisdom. Wisdom means acknowledging the uniqueness of each situation, prayerfully lifting it before the Lord and saying, well, in that situation, that wouldn't have worked, but what about this one? Policy's easy. Policy's here, the three things, church, you need to do to live such good lives. Wisdom is... It's hard. It requires life experience, conversation and community, prayer with others. You have to care enough to use wisdom. We need wisdom in knowing when to be on that side, when to lean that way, when to lean down. But perhaps even more than wisdom, we need the actual Spirit of God in us speaking to us and working through us. And this is why policies will never be enough. This is why the three things you need to do to live such good lives will never work because we need to cultivate a sensitivity to the very Spirit of God who is promised to be living in us so that in any given situation, we're able to pause and do a spirit check and say, Lord, I feel like I should say this right now. Call me off. <laughs> and sometimes he might. Or sometimes you'll be saying, Lord, I don't want to say that right now. And the Spirit's going to be like, oh, yes, you will. There are specific times that I can think back on in my life where that has been the only reason that I have approached somebody or engaged in conversation with somebody. I was leading a worship service in college, and there was a woman who came in two hours early for some reason. They got the time wrong. And she just sat in the back. And I, it's, it's like I heard the voice of God say, go speak to her. I'm like, I'm in the middle of a worship rehearsal. Uh, no, that's obviously not what I should do. But I went, and it turns out she was a woman in crisis. She, she needed somebody to understand her marriage was in crisis, and she got the time wrong, and there was some sort of divine appointment that got it all figured out, and I had nothing to do with it. Like, it was just, but that's just one of those times where you hear 
you're aware that the Spirit of God can actually overrule what you'd rather do. That's been far too rare in my life. And I would propose that's because I'm a chicken. That's because I'm afraid to give the Spirit of God that much say in my life because he'll probably have a lot to say. And heaven forbid I get called to follow higher up and deeper in. Wisdom and spirit, that's what it takes to live in the middle. That's what it takes to live such good lives. So when Peter's writing, live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And this is part of my favorite part of the text. That if we are actually living with wisdom, being different, making a difference, loving those who are different from us, if, we're li- if, we, if we actually have such good deeds that are visible, observable, measurable out in an unbelieving world, then when they want to call us bigots, they can't because they know us. They're like, well, I know all those other Christians are bigots, but really, them? No. They're always at the open door serving. They're, always, they're, they're on every school council. He coaches soccer. He, he invests in the community. I know him. He loves people. If we're living our lives visibly different in those three arenas, being different, making a difference, loving those who are different from us, then though they accuse us, though they want to accuse us of doing wrong, the evidence suggests otherwise. They'll see our good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. That one day, maybe, this is what it looks like, that our lives might actually open their eyes that Jesus might be real. And that they might come to saving faith in Him. And they might actually be standing side by side with us, glorifying God on the day He comes. As foreigners and exiles, Peter writes, we should be different. Abstaining from sinful desires, we should be confident in our identity in Christ and that they may see our good deeds, we should be visible in the world. We are called to be different from the world. And it is not something to be embarrassed of. It is not something to be ashamed of. It is not something that we need to hide under a rock from. We are called to be different from the world, and we are called that for a purpose. And it's not so that we can have great lives. It is for God's own glory. And that even more people might be among the assembly of the saints giving glory to God on the day He visits us. That image is hard. There are no easy answers here but there are good answers. There are right answers. There are God-honoring answers in our call to be different from the world around us. And to close, and you'll see why I give it this sort of a hand gesture, I present to you a short video celebrating, changing our perspective Instead of being ashamed to be different, instead of not wanting to be noticed to be different, instead of allowing those kinds of pressures to influence our thoughts, perhaps there's a different way of viewing what it means to be different.
home. One teaching point in particular. Then I find there is no respect for the status quo. We can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. But the only thing we can't do is ignore them. But what a different take on what it means to be different. What a different take on, on the privilege we have to be different. And the fact that by being different, by being different, by making a difference, and by loving those who are different from us, we can literally change the world because we're part of God's kingdom purposes, ascribing glory and worth to his name. Will you pray with me? Yeah, that was a cheap move with the Apple ad at the end, Lord. But with that said, it does actually capture some of what I am captivated by, which is the chance to live for you in an unbelieving world in a way that is winsome and redemptive and whole, in a way that honors and confers dignity upon people with whom we disagree, that, that models for an unbelieving world even how to dialogue about differences. God, you, you, you created the church so that the, your manifold wisdom would be put on display for the world and for the powers to see. And God, I ask in this that you would be at work um, giving us confidence to be different, giving us the courage to live visibly in an unbelieving world, and that we would actually celebrate the beauty that these differences present so that an unbelieving world might have a shot at catching a glimpse of you. I want to pray for the relationships that are in this room and that, that have been coming to mind in, in these people's minds. People they love and care for deeply yet don't know you. And I ask for wisdom and we ask for an extra measure of your Holy Spirit to speak clearly and to lead us in how to navigate those relationships in a way that confers dignity upon them while also providing access to the gospel. And God, I also pray for those relationships that are antagonistic that people were thinking about even through this, this time together. And even there, we ask for wisdom and we ask for your Spirit's presence to be actively leading and guiding us to know what it looks like to love people across antagonistic divide. But in all of this, Lord, none of, these, none of this matters if we lose sight of our life with you. And so in all of this, God, will you draw us deeper in to love with you, that we will be ever more captivated with who you are, Lord Jesus, enjoying your presence in our lives, 
so the overflow is not a Christian worldview. So the overflow is life everlasting, life to the full, and that that's what's on display because we love you. And we do. We love you. And we invite you to use us in God-glorifying ways in an unbelieving world. In your precious name. Amen.